Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would move now among us, and we ask that you would do a work. We pray that you would manifest your love to us in such a way that we would be carried forward to maturity, that we would be land that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated. Give us this blessing, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19, We love because he first loved us. I would invite you to think for a moment about what it looks like when someone has not been loved. They don't love. If they have not experienced God's love, they don't love. And as an illustration of what I have in mind, I would offer you Inspector Javert from the famous uh, play and novel Les Mis. Inspector Javert, he, he rigorously wants to see the law kept no matter what. And when a display of the love of God is before him, he rejects it. He sees the way that Jean Valjean has been transformed he sees the good that Jean Valjean is doing in the world, and he can't see it. He can't acknowledge it. He can't understand it. It has no impact upon him. He does not love because he has not been loved. And I would ask you this morning, just this simple question, have you experienced the love of God? And and. A way to diagnose the answer to that question is to ask yourself, am I loving? Am I like Javert or am I like Valjean? Am I somebody who loves other people? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. I, I would invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 12, and in many ways, this sermon this morning is a continuation of last week when we looked at Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3. And what we saw last week was the way that the author wants his audience to be carried forward to maturity. And I would, I would suggest that what he wants to carry them to maturity is their experience of the love of God. And, and I talked last week about how when he says that you need you need milk, not solid food. Uh, what, what he's saying is you, you're at a place where you're constantly deciding whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. And you need to get to a place where that decision is made and you've moved from the milk of the initial decision to the solid food of the established character, the established practice, the, as, he, as he puts it here in 5.13, the trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And as a result of that, you bear fruit. And, and you, it's just a given that you are going to serve, and you are going to love, and you are going to rejoice, and you are going to give thanks. That's how you're going to respond. 
And so what he's doing, what this author is doing for us in 6.4, and we've come to Hebrews 6.4, this famous so-called warning passage, what he's doing for his audience is making plain, I would suggest, what is possible for those who keep on staying at that initial decision. They're at the initial decision, am I going to follow Jesus or not? And it's possible that they may decide, nope, I'm not going to follow Jesus. Because it hasn't become a fixed result, an established constant, a, a, a trained, disciplined response where you've, you've recognized the situation that you need to grow in, you've thought through the dynamics of what leads to a, an unrighteous response or a righteous response, and then you've trained yourself. When I get into this situation, I am going to respond in righteousness. And then you practice it, and, and your senses become honed, and your skills get stronger. It's like your fingers develop dexterity, and you become somebody who's able to say, this is what a follower of Jesus does. That's who I am. The other option is not even a possibility. And, and the author here in this warning passage is saying, don't stay at that initial decision. Because if you go the other way, you will be siding with those who are the enemies of the Lord Jesus. So look with me at Hebrews 6.4 here. Having, he's just said in 6.3, this we will do if God permits. And what he means in 6.3 is we will leave the elementary doctrine 6.1 and be carried to maturity, 6.1. That, 6.3, we will do if God permits. And now he's going to explain the necessity of this, verse 4, for it is impossible. It is impossible. And then he's going to describe people who have experienced what, look like, what looks like conversion. And, and then uh, he's going to complete his thought all the way down in verse, verse, verses 5 and 6, really verse 6, when he says, and then have fallen away. So verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. And then verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Okay? Now, let's, let's ask the question right here at the beginning. Why is it impossible for these people who have once been enlightened, 6-4, and then have fallen away, 6-6, why is it impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance? And here's a basic principle of biblical interpretation. Anytime you're puzzled by something, anytime you hit something that, that you're not sure what to do with, you don't know how to interpret it correctly, you should keep reading. You should keep reading. The answer to that question, why is it impossible for those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away to be renewed again to repentance, look at the rest of the verse in verse 6. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, so here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying if you, if you come into this crisis situation and, and you're on that knife's edge, am I going to be a Christian or not? Am I going to act like a Christian or not in this situation? Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow the world? And, and he's saying, you need to get off that knife's edge. You need to go on to maturity. If you don't, and you go the other way, you need to be really clear about what you're doing. 
What you're doing is you're saying those Jews who handed Jesus over to the Romans and shouted crucify, they had the right idea. He needs to be crucified. And he didn't get out of that grave. He was publicly shamed, and that's right where he deserves to be. Now, this is really important for us in our application because it says to us that in those moments where we choose not to follow Jesus, that's implicitly what we're declaring. In those moments where we face some kind of a, a, a call to follow Jesus, we know the good thing that we ought to do, and we don't do it, which James says is sin. We, we know I should serve this person, and I don't do it. When I do that, I'm essentially declaring Jesus was in the wrong. Jesus deserved to get crucified. And then if I get confirmed in that decision, and I leave off following Jesus, and I don't pursue holiness in the fear of God, and I don't take up the cross and follow him, and I don't love because he first loved us, and I don't serve in the way that he served us. I don't live as he lived that I might die as he died. I don't do any of that stuff that it looks like to follow Jesus. What I'm saying is the crucifiers were in the right. And what that means is, if that's what you're saying with your life or with your mouth, but, but really what you do with your life shows what's in your heart. And if that's what you're saying, you are the seed of the serpent. You are the seed of the serpent. And the author is saying that those who go that way, those, those who side against Jesus and vote for his crucifixion and, and decide he is shameful and he should be publicly shamed, they're lost. It is impossible to renew them to repentance because here's the deal. You're going to get confirmed in one way of life or the other. You're either going to get... You're either going to get trained by constant practice to discern good and evil and, and learn to choose the good and learn to do the right and learn to repent when you sin and persevere in counting it all joy when you pay, face trials of many kinds, in rejoicing always and praying without ceasing and in everything giving thanks. You're either going to get confirmed in that way of life or you're going to get confirmed in the other way of life. And if you get confirmed in the other way of life, it's just the opposite of all that. Instead of counting it joy, you just complain. Instead of rejoicing always, you're always sullen. Instead of giving thanks in all circumstances, you've always got something that you're upset about. Instead of, instead of following Jesus, you are following your father, the devil. And the author says that if that happens to you, you are crucifying once again the Son of God to your own harm. Look at verse 6 there. It is impossible to res restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. And that phrase, to their own harm, that means you're the one that's going to suffer for this because ultimately you're going to go to hell. And it also means you are ruining your own life because nobody lives in the Garden of Eden. Everybody's circumstances are going to be less than ideal Everybody's going to have things in their lives that aren't the way they would choose them to be. How are you going to respond? You're going to rejoice, give thanks, count it joy, persevere, or are you going to grumble and complain and make your own life and everybody around you miserable? That's what the author, you're on a knife's edge, which way are you going to go? Which way of life are you going to get confirmed in? 
They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You're siding with those who crucified the Lord Jesus. Now let, let's walk through verses 4 through 6 so that we can see the ways that the author is trying to entice you away from that outcome. The author is trying to say to his audience, don't go that way. So let's start with uh, verse 4 there. It is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, and, and you can just think of other things in the New Testament along these lines. We can think, for instance, of the Apostle Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. And the Lord Jesus, and here I think, I think the author is, it's like he's teasing the mind, minds of his audience with little tidbits from the Old Testament. And this is in keeping what he's done all through the letter, where really in chapters 3 and 4 there was a lot in there about the wilderness generation. And so I'm going I'm to say some things about what the Lord Jesus said, but what Jesus was saying was really in fulfillment of what you had in the, in the Exodus narratives, in particular with reference to the wilderness generation. So you remember the Lord Jesus in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And I would propose to you that in context, in John 8, Jesus is saying something like, after the exodus, Israel followed that pillar of fire. I'm the fulfillment of the pillar of fire. And if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. So I think there's a little bit of an overtone of the way the Israelites followed the pillar of fire. And we've already seen in Hebrews 3 what happened to that wilderness generation. So let me just draw your attention back to chapter 4, verse 2. In 4, verse 2, he says of that wilderness generation, Hebrews 4, 2, good news came to us just as to them. And good news there is gospel. He's essentially saying... The Exodus, gener the, the generation that experienced the wilderness, they got the old covenant version of the gospel. And now we've got the gospel just as they got the gospel. And then look at what he goes on to say in verse 2. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So they, they got the gospel, but it didn't benefit them. They followed the pillar of fire out of slavery through the wilderness, and they perished. In the wilderness. Look at what he says next in, in chapter 6. Verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. And then the next phrase, who have tasted the heavenly gift. And here again, I think there's a little bit of Jesus pointing back to the Old Testament. I love these statements in John 6. Jesus says in John 6, 35, he's, he's, been, he's just fed the 5,000 in John 6. And then they have this conversation about how Moses uh, gave the manna from heaven. And Jesus says, it's not Moses that gave you uh, the bread of life, but my father, he's the one who gives you the bread of life. And then he says, the bread of life is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And, and as so often in John, they, don't under, they think he's speaking literally and he's speaking of something spiritual. So they say, give us this bread always. And he says this in John 6, 35, I and the bread of life. <clears throat> whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. So it's like Jesus is saying in John 8, 12, I'm the fulfillment of the pillar of fire. And then in John 6, 35, it's like he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of the manna from heaven. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, they followed the pillar. They ate the manna from heaven. They died in the wilderness. Don't be like them. Why did they die in the wilderness? Hebrews 4, 2. They were not united by faith with those who listened. What has he said in Hebrews 6? Well, 6, uh, sorry, 5, 11. You have become dull of hearing. You got to listen. Continuing in Hebrews 6, uh, that next phrase, I, I think there's a kind of uh, um, a stair step up to, the, up to this central point in 6.4 and then corresponding steps on the other way down. So the midpoint is there in, at the end of 6.4 and have shared in the Holy Spirit. You could translate this, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. You've experienced the Holy Spirit. So they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, and they've shared in the Holy Spirit. And we can think again of the way that back in Numbers 11... Uh, the Lord takes some of the spirit that's on Moses and he puts it on the 70 elders so that the community more, more broadly will experience the leadership of the spirit. And then Moses says, I wish they all had the spirit. And then Jesus in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John explains, he's not literally saying he's going to be the, the rock from which water flows. He's saying he's the rock who's going to give the Holy Spirit to all his people. This he spoke of the Spirit, which had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so all of the people of Jesus received the Holy Spirit. And, and there's, the, again, an analog to the, the wilderness generation. And, and the author is saying, if this is your experience, don't be like one of those Israelites in the wilderness who then, who, who then didn't believe. Who, because they weren't joined by faith with those who listened. So they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Next, verse 5. And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And what I think of here is, is the way that Jesus comes as the word made flesh. And, and notice you've got tasted the heavenly gift in verse 4, right before the Spirit, and then tasted the goodness of the Word of God in verse 5, right after the Holy Spirit. So it's like Holy Spirit at the pinnacle, and then this tasting on either side, and I would reference again John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. And, and, and this tasting of the heavenly gift and experience the, experiencing the, the, the powers of the age to come, I think it's really an anticipation of the kingdom of heaven. And, and there in John 6, I would propose to you that what Jesus is doing as he, as he tells those poor people who I, I think had no uh, understanding of what he was saying, he's saying things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. I think Jesus is anticipating what he's going to do on the night when he is betrayed. And, and he's going to take the, the bread that symbolizes the hasty departure from Egypt. And he's going to take the cup that symbolizes their redemption from Egypt. And, and, the, and the covenant that they enjoyed with the, with the Lord. And he's going to say, this is no longer about Egypt. This is my body, which is for you. Take, eat. And this cup is the new covenant. Take and drink. And, and I think that that is also pointing back to the way that they got to Mount Sinai. And there's this 
this amazing statement in Exodus 24, verse 8, where Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, which that's interesting in itself given what happened to them, and 70 of the elders of, of, of Israel, they go up on the mountain, and Exodus 24, 8 says, they saw the God of Israel, and they ate and they drank. It's almost like they enter into this, this covenant meal. And if they saw the God of Israel in the context, it's like they see him in his heavenly temple. They see him enthroned, which is an anticipation of the age to come. In the age to come, heaven and earth will be united. The new Jerusalem, Revelation says, is going to come down from, from, from God out of heaven. And Nadab and Abihu were there. And in Leviticus 10, they offered strange fire and they were struck dead because they didn't listen. They were not united by faith with those who listened. Did I say Numbers 10? I meant Leviticus 10. Hopefully I said the right thing. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like Nadab and Abihu. Don't partake of the Lord's Supper and then not follow Jesus. If you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, you're saying, I am committed. I'm going to rejoice always. I'm going to submit to the authorities in my life. I'm going to take up my cross. I, if I run into something that I don't like, I'm going to pray without ceasing. And in everything, I'm going to find things to give thanks for. And there are always things to give thanks for. So many so many things that you would run out of time if you tried to list them all to give thanks for. So it's impossible, Hebrews 6.4, in the case of those who have experienced, you could almost say, everything the wilderness generation experienced, and then have fallen away. So they've been enlightened, they've tasted, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted... And then it fallen away. Fallen away stands across from being enlightened. And again, I think he has in view the wilderness generation as the, as the, the sort of negative, typifying, prefiguring of what he's talking about. There are positive types, there are negative types. The wilderness generation is a negative type. Don't be like them. And then we've talked about how what their actions declare. Their actions declare Jesus needed to be crucified. Their actions declare he should be shamed. <clears throat> now, he, what, what the author is going to do is he's going to flesh this out with an illustration for us in verses 7 and 8. And that illustration is, is standing across from 6, 1 through 3. So as we read 6, 7, and 8... You should think in terms of what he says there in 6.1 when he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And I think he means, you know, the beginning points. Let us leave the initial decision to be a believer and be carried on to maturity. And, and, and now he's going to define what that looks like. Look at verse 7 where he says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to, to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Okay, Let, let's start with the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. He, this land 
stands for believers. Because if you look at verse, uh, verse 8, the next verse, if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless in here to being cursed. So that, you don't want that outcome. The land is, is a symbol of believers here. And so the, the land that drinks the rain that often falls on it is the believer who regularly hears the teaching of the word of God. The believer who's, he, it's almost like he's the tree planted by streams of water. Or we could say the fig tree that the Lord Jesus curses. Those are the two sort of uh, positive and negative examples. And, and, and the, 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 the blessed man in Psalm 1, the, 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 the flowing water is nourishing its roots. And as a re result, its leaf isn't withering and it's bearing fruit in season. We could say he's counting it all joy. He's rejoicing always. He's, uh, giving, he's praying without ceasing. And in everything, he's giving thanks. He's following Christ. He's taking up the cross. He's serving other people. That's what the blessed man is doing. What's that tree that Jesus curses, the fig tree. What's it doing? It's not bearing fruit. It's not bearing fruit. So we want to recognize how merciful God is being to us. We have, we have the gospel. We have the news that our deepest need has been met in Christ. That God has reconciled us to himself. That he's made it so that our guilt can be assuaged. He's made it so that we can have fellowship with him. If you get into a situation and you're tempted to grumble, you should go back to the gospel. And you should meditate anew on what a mercy it is that you are not already in hell. And if, that's not, if that doesn't seem relevant to you, if that seems like that's not going to work, I don't think you've fully understood it like you need to. And, and what you need to do is you need to keep thinking about it. You need to keep thinking about the sinfulness of your sin. You need to keep thinking about the unyielding character of God's holiness. And then you just need to be amazed that, that Christ died for you. We have the gospel. We have the Bible. What a book. What treasures and riches. I don't think there is anything in the world like the Bible. In, I started listening yesterday to one of these great courses. You know, the, um, the teaching company puts these out, and this is a history of Christianity. And the guy was talking about, in the history of Christianity, he said, there's really nothing like the history of doctrine that you, in other religions that you have in Christianity. He, he said it's really Christians who develop this whole, this whole idea of the teachings of the, the theological content of faith. These other religions, they're more like ways of life. And he's not, being, he's not trying to uh, criticize them or anything. He's just distinguishing between the way that Christians have, have truths that are taught. And, and it's really distinct. And those truths all arise out of the teaching of Scripture. And, and it's, it's this amazing book that is simultaneously a collection of literary masterpieces and inspired by the Holy Spirit and the very Word of God. What a book. We have the gospel. We have the Bible. We have life. We have opportunities before us. We get to live in this world. So much to be grateful for it. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful 
to those for whose sake it is cultivated. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in that parable of the sower. There's, a, there's production of a crop. Well, what's the, what's the crop that's useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated? Well, the, ultimately, Jesus says, I'm the vine. My father's the gardener. So we want a crop useful to the father. Praise, thanks, rejoicing, prayer, trust. You know, really, if you get into a situation and you don't like your circumstances and you start grumbling, what you're declaring is, I don't trust God to to use this for my good. I don't trust Jesus to have this subjected to his control. That's what you're saying when you complain. So when we get into these situations and we don't like the circumstances, what we need to say is, this too is subjected to the Lord Jesus. This too is being used by the Lord for my good. That's what active trust looks like. I believe that God is going to bring me through this and make me Christ-like through this. That's a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Here's another, I think, pointed application. You get into a situation... I could serve these people, or I could, you know, however you want to describe not serving them. I could act like the person who needs to be served. What you're saying is, I just don't believe what Jesus said when he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I just don't believe what Jesus said when he said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. I I don't believe that the path to greatness is the path of service. I I reject his teaching. If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's what we're saying when we say, I am unwilling to get my fingers dirty by doing this act of service. We want to produce a crop useful to those for whose sake we are being cultivated. And, I mean, look at the middle, the the last statement there in verse 7. That kind of land receives a blessing from God. So we could add that too. If if we choose not to follow Jesus, what we're saying is, I don't believe God's going to bless me for this. But if you believe he's going to bless, you're going to follow him. We love because he first loved us. If you've been loved, you will follow him. Verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, and you could think here of Genesis 3.18, the the cursed land is now going to produce thorns and thistles. When they translated that Hebrew into Greek, they used the very expression that the author of Hebrews uses here. And Jesus uses those same terms in Matthew 7.16 when he says, beware of the false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. And he says, "Uh, a good tree bears good fruit, but if it bears thorns and thistles... Well, it's not a good tree. And then the author of Hebrews continues here in verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, when the the ESV renders this, it is worthless, there's this this, uh, Greek term that speaks of those who are approved. It's this this particular word that's always used to, to speak of those who are approved by God. You know, it's, it's in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul says, there must be divisions among you to show who is approved. And, and there's a form of this word here, so you could almost say, it is unapproved. They render it, it is worthless. But this is, this is kind of going along with that statement 
back up in 513, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. They, they're untested. And as a result of being untested and unskilled, they're unapproved. You don't want to be there. You want to have proven, tested genuineness of your faith. If it bears thorns and thistles, it is unapproved or worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So that that section, Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, stands across from 6, 1 through 3, and the author, just as he is at the end of verse 3, he's optimistic in verse 3, this we will do if God permits, so also he's optimistic in 6, 9 through 12. Look at 6, 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And this confidence is not just, it's not just baseless sort of, flo- Heath Lambert preached here one time, and he, and he described himself as floating through life happy and dumb. Now, I think he was being a little hard on himself. It was really funny when he said it. You guys didn't laugh when I said it. Um, um, we're not just talking about an optimistic kind of disregarding of the circumstances, kind of, oh, everything's going to work out, you know, Pollyanna, Pollyanna kind of attitude. This is a confidence that is based on the effectiveness, the power of the Word of God. It's a confident that, confidence that says, look, if the Lord says, let there be light, there's going to be light. If the, the light of the knowledge of the, of the glory of God in the face of Christ has shown in your hearts, you're going to bear fruit. It's, it's unavoidable. It can't not happen. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things because of the power of the word of God. Because when Jesus says, you will go and bear fruit, you will. Because when you get loved by God, you can't help but love. Verse 10, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So he's pointing to evidence of grace in their lives. He's saying, you've done work that arises out of faith, and you've shown love that arises out of having been loved by God, and that love particularly was for the name of God in verse 10. The love that you have shown for his name. And and so how do you show love for God's name? Look at the next clause there. Serving the saints. That's how you show love for God's name. You you serve the saints. So if the saints need nursery workers, you you get certified to serve in the nursery. If the saints need the pots and pans cleaned up after potluck, you're happy to go down there in the kitchen and wash pots and pans. If the saints need a ride, you give them a ride. Whatever, serving the saints as you have done and still do. We persevere. Look at verse 11. The author says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And and this, this language in verses 11 and 12 in particular, I think is pointing back to the end of, end of chapter 5, 5, 11 through 14. Look at 5.14, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And that phrase there in in 6.11, 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end? Look back at chapter 3, verse 14, where having discussed the, the or in, in the process of discussing the wilderness generation, 3.14, we have come to share in Christ, same language used of being a partaker of the Holy Spirit, sharing in the Holy Spirit, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, this perseverance to the end. In other words, there never comes a time when, when you get to say, well, I counted it joy, and I can stop doing that. Or, I, I was really good at rejoicing always, but I'm over that now. Or, I was, I was in a season when I was praying without ceasing, and I can give it a rest. No, we never get to do that. We, we, we proceed with this same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We persevere until the end. And then look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. And again, I mentioned last week how that word sluggish is the same word that's rendered dull in 511. You've become dull of hearing. Well, all, the, all of this is so that you won't be dull. All of this, it's like he's saying what he said in 2.1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What he said when he's quoting Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And what he says over in chapter 12, when, I think I mentioned this, essentially declaring this letter is the word of God. He says, do not neglect him who is speaking. And then look at the last clause of verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now the imitators... Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is just like 5.12. By this time you want to be teachers. What's a teacher? A teacher is an imitator. A teacher is somebody who passes on the tradition in imitation of those who have gone before. And, and I just I want to commend to you what the author says at the end of this letter and, and, and put that last clause of 6.11 together with what the author says over in... Hebrews chapter 13, when he says in 13.7, remember your leaders, and I think he's talking about the elders of the church, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And that, that, that's very similar to what we've just read here in 6.12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So I want to give you another reason to be grateful. Um, I, I want to commend to you the elders of this church, and, and I want to commend to you to think to yourself, we are so blessed to be led by these men. We, are so, we have so much to be grateful in the form of the elders that the Holy Spirit has given to Kenwood Baptist Church. And now, having said that, I also want to say, before I commend each one of them to you for different things, I, I want to say, um, we're just ordinary guys. We are just ordinary sinners just like you. Who are, who are working at getting our senses trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. So please pray for us, and please don't think that we've reached some kind of unattainable spiritual height that you'll never get to. That's not the way this works. Every one of us, every one of us elders feels like, I'm not worthy to walk with, those guys, with these guys. That's how we all feel. So I, I want to commend to you, I'm going to try to go in alphabetical order, but sometimes my alphabet isn't always effective, but I'm going to try to get there. 
Um, Clint, Clint Armani, look, what, I'm, what I want to commend are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This brother is faithful. He is loving. He is generous. He is patient. And his patience has that quality of meekness, of, of like restrained power. I mean, Clint is brilliant, and he is super accomplished, and he will listen to you, which is really rare with somebody with his kind of background and intelligence. Denny Burke, see here I'm out of alphabetical order because I think I should go to Randall Breland, but I'm coming to Randall next. Denny Burke, praise God for Denny. You know, the fruits of the, 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 fruits of the Holy Spirit, the one that jumps out to me with Denny is goodness. There is this earnest concern for holiness, this fear of God, that, that bears fruit in this moral clarity. If you ever run into some kind of moral dilemma, you should ask yourself, I wonder what Denny thinks about this. And then if you can't just text him or call him, you should go look at DennyBurke.com. It's a blessing to be served by him. Randall Breland. I think I could list all the fruits of the Holy Spirit, but I'm just going to name joy and, and love and readiness to serve. And humility. It's, it's beautiful to see somebody who so happily is willing to, to do the dirty work. To do, to do the, the servant-hearted, often behind the scenes, Christ-like greatness of service. Chris Birch. Uh, at least I got him after Denny. But he should have, you know, Randall should have been before Denny. Um, Chris Birch. This guy is an encourager. If you need some encouragement in your life, you ought to rub up against Chris Birch. And that brother is a bulldog for righteous living. So if, uh, if, if, if there are areas in your life where you need to overcome, you ought to start rubbing shoulders with Chris Birch. And he will live out before you. This is what it looks like to be an overcomer. And, and he will call you unashamedly to join him in the fight. It's beautiful. Matt D'Amico, um, gentle, self-controlled, peace. Kindness, what a blessing. What a blessing to be led in worship by Matt, to get to walk by Matt. Gabe Molnar, faithful, joyful. And, and, and when I say faithful, I have in particular with reference to, to Gabe, abiding in the word. It was so providentially glorious that Gabe read Psalm 1 today. Honestly, every time I think, I, I, I think of sending, setting out to teach Psalm 1, Gabe comes to mind. Bearing fruit in season, leaf not withering, it, it's, it's magnificent to have an, somebody living out the truth of Psalm 1 before us. And, and J.O., this is a guy who listens in love and speaks the truth in love. And, and as I thought about J.O., as I was making these notes, I couldn't help but think of 1 Corinthians 16, 14, where Paul says, um, he, he uses that phrase, act like men, do everything in love. There is manly love that's just radiating out from J.O.'s life. John Wilsey. The phrase that came to mind when I, when I thought about John was dignified joy. He, he's an elder who is dignified. And, and sometimes the joy that we get to experience of him can almost eclipse the, the, our, our perception of the dignity. But listen, if I showed you this man's CV, his resume you would think to yourself, oh my goodness. He goes to our church. This is a brother who lives out dignified joy. He is humble and he is unassuming 
And this word quality comes to mind, willing to suffer. So I commend these guys to you. And, and the reason I'm commending them to you is because I, I hope that you will be grateful for them and that this will not you know, put them up on a pedestal and make them further from you, but make you want to get closer to them because I think if you do that, it will be all the easier for you to do 612. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so to apply all of this, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Here's a point of application for you. Be loved by God. Experience the love of God. You say, what, what, is it, what does it look like for me to be loved by God? Well, you need to meditate on what I was talking about a moment ago. You need to meditate on the gospel. You need to contemplate your sin, the holiness of God, and his gift of Christ. And that is how he has loved the world. Be loved by God. Become a Christian. Experience that love and you'll be transformed by it. And, and that also entails, here's your second application, behold Christ. Behold him. See the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus. Be served by him. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. So receive it. Love him. Be loved so that you can love him. Worship him. Behold Christ so that you can worship. Be served by him so that you can go and do likewise. And to illustrate this, I would, I would offer you Jean Valjean. This is a guy, as you know from the story, he's a criminal. And then he experiences the love of God at the hands of that merciful blessing of a bishop. And that love of God transformed him and, and took him from being somebody who loved sin and himself to being somebody who was a servant of others who loved others, who was a blessing to others. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Lord, it, at many times and in many ways in the past, you spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, you have spoken to us in your Son, and we thank you for the confidence that we can have that your word will bear fruit. It will not return to you void. So, Lord, I praise you in advance for what you're going to do in the lives of these, your people. I praise you in advance for the crop that is useful to you, the cultivator, that is going to come, the, the 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And, Lord, I pray that you would... In your sovereignty, cause us to be those who take responsibility. Cause us to be those who commit ourselves to hearing, to not being sluggish or dull, but to paying much closer attention to what we have heard. Cause us to be those who are ready to count it all joy, rejoice always, pray continually, and in everything give thanks. Lord, these and, and all the other things that the New Testament calls us to, Lord, we pray that you would cause it to happen by the power of your word and thereby that you would make us worthy of the calling that we have received 
in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.